Hi, everyone. My name is Joe Alterman. I'm the executive director of the Atlanta-based Naranana Concert and Culture Series, and I'm thrilled to welcome you back to Behind the Notes. I'm very excited to share today's conversation where I speak with the legendary David Broza with all of you. David Broza is an internationally renowned Israeli singer-songwriter recognized for his dynamic guitar performances and humanitarian efforts. His signature sound brings together the influence of Spanish flamenco, American folk, rock and roll, and poetry. Social justice and peace advocacy are embedded all through his work. His 1970s song, Yihye Tov, remains an Israeli peace anthem. With over 40 albums released, many of which are multi-platinum in English, Hebrew, and Spanish, Broza continues to tour globally, both as a solo musician and with his various musical projects. For those of you tuned in today, you're in for a treat. Broza and I have a fascinating, wide-ranging, and very fun and interesting conversation around his influences, his heroes, performing with and for his heroes, the concept of what is Jewish music, what is Israeli music, and so much more. Let's get started. I appreciate you uh, chatting with me for this, you know, Neuron and a Scholars. This is our fourth season and we've really explored like the jewish contributions to american music and comedy until now and so you bring like a fresh different perspective to this thing so i you know i appreciate you uh coming on this journey of me with me uh i'm i'm always looking to find what's the jewish part in the music and uh we're kind of just getting into that a little bit okay i thought it'd be great just to kind of to touch on to start with kind of just how you were uh uh how music was first brought into your life. Like, do you remember what you first heard or what first resonated with you or like what made you fall in love with the music? You, you remind me of the 2000 year old man, you know, <laughs> like the uh, man's would be Bernie. <laughs> yeah, Bernie. I don't know. I was sitting in a cave, you know, just minding my own business. No. Um, what? Well, my, you know, I come from a musical house. Uh, my mother was a folk singer. It was like Israel's first, kind of folk singer with a guitar. Mm. The name was Sharona Aaron, Sharona mm-hmm. Aaron. And so always, there was always music. She was always practicing, um, entertaining in the evenings with friends. Just, mm-hmm. I mean, not entertaining audiences. That what she would do on the road. But, you know, oh, the house was very bohemian and filled with beautiful people of different skills and arts. Mm. And uh, so there's always music around. And that actually prompted me to not want to be a musician. This is the one thing I didn't want to be. <laughs> there was too much of it around. I felt, um, I think now I understand it better. It probably was something that registered with me as, uh, oh, the music, that's the thing that takes my mother away from me. So I hate music. Mm. I don't have anything to do with it. And yet, you know, I was, I was music. I guess I was very musical because we always sang and would take road trips with my, you know, my parents, and I have a sister younger than me, one year younger, a year and a mm. half younger. Her name is Talia. And uh, so we would always drive, and my parents, would, we'd all sing in harmonies. I guess mm. since I was a kid, we didn't know, we didn't even know it was harmonies. We just, mm-hmm. this is, we sang. Right. And so there's always music. And since there was a guitar in the house, uh, when I was 12, just before 12, um, we moved to Madrid, Spain. Mm-hmm. And that was a very big, I guess, uh, uh, a milestone in my, in my life. It was, it was, a, it, it had its pros and cons, mostly cons at the time, because I was torn away from my 
neighborhood, from my friends, from my school, mm. from my language, from my country. It was right after the Six Days War. So mm. with all the euphoric, uh, the danger before and the euphoric uh, state in, in the, you know, like I was pulled away from the, this time, it was 1967, and brought to Madrid where I, you know, Spanish is the language. We had no clue what that was. English, my parents spoke uh, some English at home. So the, I, I was familiar with the, la- with the sound, never spoke the language. And then there was the guitar in the house and I was sent to an English school filled with foreigners in Madrid. And somehow, I guess it's the loneliness. I don't know what it was. It got me wanting to play the guitar. Mm-hmm. And so I, my mother lent me her guitar. And I, I basically, I, I taught myself. I, there was, they had a friend who uh, was uh, a beatnik mm-hmm. and was living on the, uh, you know, it was a draft dodger from mm-hmm. the Vietnam War. So he was just living his life in, in Madrid, befriended my friends, my parents. They would have him over. And then he taught me a few chords, two or three chords. And I took it from there. Wow. And this is, this is the kind of more, it's not the long version of the story, but this is part of the story. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, did you go to record stores and buy records or did you kind of just hear what your parents were playing? And yeah, I heard what my parents were playing. I didn't buy, I, you know, no, I didn't, I didn't buy any records really? at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like a year later mm-hmm. you know, after I was 13 and I started this, um, had a couple of friends in school. Mm-hmm. One volunteered to be the drummer with his hands on the table, just, you know, and another was another guitarist and we played and then, yeah, we'd go home and he would have records at home. So he would have Jackson Brown, he would have um, Otis Redding, Aretha, um, the band. That's what we would listen to. And so that was, that was really my, the first music that I heard that, that was kind of related to my gener- generation. It wasn't my generation, a generation before me. The Woodstock generation. I'm too young for that. Mm-hmm. Um, because until then, what, what my parents heard and what was what was played in my in my grandparents' house was uh, a lot of jazz and a lot of folk music too. You know, Kingston Trio, Pete mm-hmm. Seeger, um, a lot a lot of that generation. Uh, and so, I mean, the, I didn't have a taste uh, for anything. I was just going with whatever it was. But once I started listening with my good friend. His name was Anthony Friend in mm-hmm. Madrid to his to his music, his collection, which he shared with his older sisters. I guess that's where it came from. Uh, I fell in love with that music. And the first voice that really caught my attention until today is probably the most inspiring voice I've ever heard was Otis Redding. Uh, and that was like that was the biggest thing. And later mm-hmm. on, as I, as I continued exploring with the guitar, then it was Jimi Hendrix. And as I was Starting to learn songs, it was songs of the band, mm. Doors, Jackson Brown. Um, mm-hmm. I never got, I never really got to the Beatles. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was much, much later. For some, for, I don't even know why. Wow, I don't know. We were, we were listening to other stuff. So when you'd start getting into stuff like Jackson Brown and stuff, with the music that your parents played growing up, was that stuff that you still liked listening to, or was that kind of you know older? stuff to you or you know good question mm-hmm. well you know my dad loved sinatra as well and they had eight tracks in the car if you know what that is 
I, I remember. I shocked you. I shocked you. Okay. Yes. So he had an eight track, and you know, it just goes in a loop, continues. So we mm. would listen. So he would compensate. Uh, he would put a, um, uh, a Sinatra album, mm. and then he would put Abbey Road. That's mm. when I got to hear the Beatles, and and we would be driving for, you know, from place to place in Spain, just on weekends. Could be an hour, three hours, four hour drives, <laughs> and we would be listening in loop. All these eight tracks that he had and, and and so that music never really their music progressed they, mm -hmm. they weren't stuck in their own world right they listened mm -hmm. like the you know uh, peter paul and mary suddenly was there bob dylan they listened mm. they liked that stuff yeah, yeah. it's not that they were progressive but they progressed with times um mm. you know when i was 13 they took me and my sister we drove to paris from madrid spain wow. and we went and they took us to see uh, in in two days. We saw Woodstock, the film, wow. and the next day we saw Let It Be. Oh, so man. it was like that's my parents. That's what they educated mm. me. So wow. that's when I that's when I got to hear the Beatles, you know, and, and start mm. understanding the culture. And of course, Woodstock really got me. But I never wanted to be a musician. <laughs> I played it because of loneliness. Mm. I played it because of connectivity with other kids. Even though I was. I was in sports and that's fine. I was a swimmer, played basketball and stuff, but that was not, to me, that was cool, but I was not mm. living in the neighborhood like in Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, as I was growing up, until the age of 12, everything was around the neighborhood. We were in the same school, all of us, after school, mm. we'd meet the same class, you know, so we would be, you know, about 40 kids in a class and there'd be, of the same age, there'd be two classes, right? So there'd be, mm -hmm. 80 of us. So we could choose our friends. Then we went to the Boy Scouts, the girls, Scouts, no Boy Scouts, mm. Scouts, the general Israeli Tzofim, it's called. And I had a lot of outdoor activities all the time. I didn't need music. I was very, very interested in painting. I loved painting. So mm. from the age of six, I used to sit alone and paint in my room. Mm. After, the, after all the activities outdoors, sit alone in my room in Tel Aviv. And, and that became my thing, painting, until I was 22. That was my thing. Even wow. though I was developing music musically, it was it, there was no. I didn't have any vision or fantasy. Mm. I'd not. I didn't have any plans to become a professional musician. It was not something I wanted to do. Wow. So like painting, yeah. Painting was like a, a love and a hobby, but it took the move and feeling kind of lonely. That music kind of became like your emotional outlet in a way. It was, it was, it was, you know, I, I was sharing both, both of these art, <laughs> art forms. So I'd be listening to records mm -hmm. in my room and painting. Mm -hmm. And then I would pick up the guitar and try to learn a song that I just listened to. Uh, like Joni Mitchell or David Crosby or whatever. Mm -hmm. Figure it out. And, uh, and then go back to painting. Mm -hmm. And then, I, then my friend Anthony Friend played some guitar, not only drums and guitar. And we started doing harmonies. Mm -hmm. You know, we just... We hung out together. We didn't. Then we started a band when we were fourteen, Man. and and we played in the school. In the girl, you know, it was a garage band. So we played wow. in the school and played in some functions. But it was it was just a sport. It was never. I never took it seriously as so as to learn music, how to read music, or I didn't take classes in any form.
did you eventually take those kind of classes or you know no and yeah, yeah, yeah. no I, and I, I probably won't even I, I, even though I, I thought I would no yeah. I, I did get I did get a scholarship at one point mm. much when I was much older after the army mm. uh, I got a scholarship um, from the from Keren Charette, it's called the Israel America Israel Fund they they give scholarships to artists wow. and uh, they gave me a, a year's worth of classes with a great teacher his name mm. is Rafi Kadisho, an amazing musician in Israel wow. and uh but I was already I was like 23 almost 24 and I was and I was I already had a child mm. and I was doing like 35 shows a month wow. and I was so tired that when I got to his class to, to the private lesson that was my time mm. to fall asleep on him and I literally slept for a whole year in his classes <laughs> and at the end he would give me coffee and send me home you know, he got paid for this. In years to come, he became my official arranger for my uh, collaborations with the Philharmonic, you know, symphony orchestras and stuff. I would always turn to him to mm. write the arrangements because I never learned how to write music. Wow. I, but thanks to the fact that I don't write music, I depend on others to help me. So I create, I have a lot of collaborations and good friendships totally. that come of it. See? Yeah, that's it's amazing. Like, <laughs> well, it's worked out nice yeah you've had to collaborate with some of your heroes too i mean you mentioned jackson brown i mean you, you performed you know worked with him was that we did yeah i i that was interesting mm. yeah i don't even know if he if he understood or or if i even told him that he was one of my first you know heroes um yeah i was i was you know I'm, uh, about 30 years ago 1993 I was mm -hmm. uh, invited to this festival in in uh, Israel, in the south of Israel, mm -hmm. in Arad. And uh, I was given a slot, three o'clock in the morning, uh, to do shows. The first two years, actually before 93, 91, 92, the first two, two years I did the shows in the theater, in the cinema. So mm -hmm. it was just three, three o'clock was my slot. It wasn't like... Wow. Oh, that's a great hour to perform. Nothing. It's mm -hmm. three o'clock. This is when you take it or leave it. And yeah. you know, I was a big name, so I I, I filled out the theater. Of course, mm. it was exciting. But but on the third, after the second show, I said I want to get out of here. I'm coming back next year if I get another another venue. And they gave me the slot at three o'clock in the morning uh, in Masada, wow. and they said play until the sun rises. <laughs> so I, I did that and I filmed it and recorded it and released it. It was a, First of all, the show itself was a huge success. Mm. Secondly, the album was like triple platinum within days. And then, mm. you know, the song that Bitachat HaShamayim, one of my greatest hits, became, you know, the hit from the live performance of it. Although mm. I'd had a studio recording of it. So those were, that was, that was my, that, that became kind of a, one of my uh, iconic shows, which Definitely. I keep doing for the, you know, for the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. Except for this summer, mm -hmm. uh, we do this every summer. We do a sunrise concert in Masada, which is mm -hmm. amazing. Um, I don't know yeah. why do we why are we talking about Masada? Oh well, we were talking about Jack. You were working with uh, Jackson. Oh Green. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for yeah steering me back on on on, on track. Bad, so don't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> don't know. So okay, this is a long story. If you want it the long way, you know. Sure. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> I was doing a show in Chicago. This is still connected to Masada. 
mm. into Jackson Brown. I was doing a show in, in Chicago and this um, woman, um, she passed away a year, less than a year ago, which is very mm. sad, very, very dear friend. She was working mm. with a local uh, PBS station, WTTW, mm. but yeah. she uh, saw me perform at a show in Chicago and came after afterwards backstage and said, I want to produce a show, a live show of yours. Where would you do it? And me, being the idiot, thinking, okay, I'll give her the impossible uh, location where to do it, and then she'll get off my back. You know? <laughs> I told her, um, Sunrise Concert in Masada. She says, mm. where's that? I said, that's <laughs> down in the desert in Israel. She says, all right, let's do it. Little did I know that, that to do a, a show, present a show in, uh, on PBS, you need to stand in line because there's, Every year they have a lot of choices and they go mm -hmm. through, you know, checking in and, you know, they have, they have a lot of people mm -hmm. contribute to deciding and curating it. Yeah. She stood by her word and it took nine years. And after nine years, she calls and says, you're up next, boy. We're going to Masada. I said, great. It was much more complicated because I had to bring the money. I had to raise all the funds. It was a very okay. expensive show. But she said, but you're also going to have to have a couple of guests on the show. So the American public will be more intrigued. So first thing that come to mind, I was, um, I'd been, I, I did a show in, uh, I, I was going to do a show in, um, in Los Angeles. And a friend of mine told me that she's going to bring Jackson Brown to see the show. What a thrill. <laughs> so I, I had in mind, okay, I'm going to invite him to Masada. So he mm. came backstage and, congratulated me for a great show and all that. And I was so touched. And I said, would you, would you accept an invitation to come and be a guest on my show in Masada? And I explained to him what it was. And he said, wow, sounds amazing. So <laughs> he, was, he, he was my guest. Wow. And he came to Israel. We did uh, an, a rehearsal night live mm. in front of cameras and then two shows in a row. It was brilliant. Wow. It was a great performance, great night. Very, very special. We also had Sean Colvin, another incredible mm -hmm. singer-songwriter. Wow. Um, we, we went through a whole list, but Jackson was mm -hmm. constantly my first mm -hmm. choice. And uh, then Sean, of course. And um, so this was a great collaboration because even now I think uh, with all the years of experience and all my years of travel and you know, opening for different artists and sharing stages with artists, when when you bring him to your own show, I think it was a little overwhelming for me. I get very shy and right. I don't know. I don't exactly know. I, just, I mean, I'm acting, I'm natural. I just act as I am, but I, I become very, uh, I want it to be super successful and I become very mm -hmm. self-conscious. Totally. Mm -hmm. But it was beautiful. Jackson was just the nicest, sweetest and the most collaborative and most musical person and very curious, super wow. curious about the history Really? Israel and and, he, and of course I told him, listen, it's not easy to invite artists of this sort, you know, with, with such integrity mm. to Israel because of politics. So I told him, I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna share with you all I have, like my friendships with the Palestinian musicians. I'll take you to East Jerusalem. I'll show you the whole story. Wow. You get to you get to have your own opinion afterwards. It's fine. Probably closer to my opinion, which is there's there's a lot to be done here. Mm -hmm. uh, to get things going and to get to improve things. So mm. it was a wonderful, he came in, I think for about five days oh. with his wife and his son and her and his, and the son's girlfriend. And it was, mm. a, it was a family, family uh, meeting for them, like getting together. Wow. 
very, very special. Yeah, so that was one of the collaborations. Wow. Yeah, I love asking musicians what it's like to perform with or for like their heroes. And you know, so I was, I was, I was, like I said, I, I was very excited and humbled. And I don't think I, I don't think I performed my best. You know, I didn't have enough time to orient myself and feel comfortable. He was very generous, amazing. Right, right. Yeah, and he's great with harmonies and. We mm. did we did a beautiful version of Yetov with Strong Colvin and him. So imagine those harmonies. And we wrote and we wrote um together. We sat the night before, the first night, and we tried to translate Yetov into English. And it's beautiful. So we, we got it, and it's all right. It's all right. Sometimes I just sometimes I just fall down. But tonight I know, tonight, my love, will bring it back around. We'll Something mm. like that would bring love back around. It was mm. perfect. It was just wow. perfect. Oh, and man. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I want to share a uh, personal story, if that's okay, on this subject. I was, when I was starting out, I was playing at the Blue Note in New York. Uh -huh. And Ahmad Jamal was sitting in the front row, my big oh, wow. piano here. I mean, and I, I, never, I never played in front of anyone that I looked up to at that point. He's like my biggest hero. I was so freaked wow. out. I didn't know what to do. I got so in my head. And then self conscious. Oh, it was, you know, I almost played a riff and I thought, oh, this comes from one of his recordings. I can't play it. You know, I was really on the contrary. Yeah, you should. Yeah, I should. Yeah. And it took a long time to figure out how to approach that situation. And once I met Les McCann, I told him that story. And Les said he was playing his first big gig in Chicago back in the day. And he's about to go on stage. And Oscar Peterson walked in the house. Jesus. He said he goes up to Oscar and he says, Mr. Peterson, I love you. You're my hero, but I can't play in front of you. And he said, Oscar said something that totally changed his life and opened him up forever he said les i didn't come here to hear me i came here to hear you <laughs> and that was just such a great learning you know even just to hear that story it made a big effect on me. so i really like asking you know things like that <laughs> it's fascinating well and remember you know we're mm -hmm. talking about now i'm, I'm already a veteran of, of right stage. right i'm not i'm not like in your situation where you know you're just totally i'm i've seen success superstardom and mm -hmm. i've played in the most uh, obscure and the most magnificent rooms in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet, That's, and yet, still. <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, I think, well, I was also very busy, you know, I, I also produced the show. I mm -hmm. mean, I had Nicolette Ferry, bless her soul. Um, she was guiding me through the whole thing and she was running the WTTW, the PBS side of it. Mm. But I had to raise all the funds. It was millions and millions of dollars. Wow. I had to raise it in cash. Now, and I'm doing like 30 shows a month at the wow. same time. Mm -hmm. And this is not so, this is like 2007. It's not like, we're not talking about prehistoric times, mm -hmm. you know, previous century. This is now. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was, I was, all of that work, I was doing all that, all the logistics mm. and talking about all this I was doing while I'm on stage performing or preparing for a show. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, we already had phones, so I, I could text in the middle of, like I had a 30 second or a minute between a song and I was off stage and I text and answered just to be on top of things. So I don't have to chase my own, you know, mm. mess. Oh, it's crazy. It was God, nuts. Wow. It was, <laughs> and, I, and I had 10 months to get it all done. Oh, man. She, wow. she told me, you're on next, right? She called and said, after nine years, she said, okay, you're up next. We're doing mm. Masada, but we're doing it next summer. So we got 10 months to go. Wow. And in 10 months, you have to do this, that, that, and the other. Woo. 
<laughs> I had no clue, but we did wow. it. You know, when, there, when there's a will, there's a way. So totally, man. That's so focused, man. That, that's amazing. Yeah, I just I have to raise a few hundred thousand dollars a year, and I just play a few gigs a week, and I can't imagine. And I'm still doing the same stuff. I can't imagine what you know. <laughs> you're raising so much more and playing bigger. No, I, I mean, I learned. I learned. Yeah. I learned. I learned that it can be done because I. I, mm. I think. I think the story was really great. Totally. Uh, mm-hmm. Bringing this kind of caliber show and showing it in every home in America. Wow. It was going to be a fantastic, mm-hmm. fantastic opportunity to bring out mm-hmm. that scenario, the vibe, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Totally. Yeah. Well, so it was. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fascinating, man. Well, did you, I don't know if you, you know, grew up going to like a synagogue or anything, but I was curious if you did, if the mu- if you saw the prayers as music back then, or if it resonated with you, that what you were hearing and, and, uh, yeah. Synagogue. I didn't. Yeah, no, I don't. I didn't. Grow, I didn't grow up as a practicing Jew, really. Mm-hmm. My father came from a, a, a practicing family. They were, mm. you know, uh, you know, uh, from mm. basically from because he was born in London. They arrived in in Tel Aviv, was Palestine then in, in mm. 1934. Wow. But and and so they yeah they were you know I guess his father kept Shabbat, mm. you know, but. But my father already grew up in Tel Aviv as a secular city. Mm. And I guess he was into the into another scene. Uh, so I grew up as an Israeli uh, who Jude- that for him Judaism is is part of your DNA and you don't have to do anything to mm. to maintain it, to keep it, to mm-hmm. um, to keep it going. Uh, but but Friday night Kiddush was always practiced. Mm. And so that music came along with it. There was music from my father's family. Uh, my mother came from a very secular family. So mm. it was my father's side that brought in that, that side. And then at the age of 16, my, uh, when I was in Spain, after a couple of years of having my, uh, my garage band and becoming more of a, you know, an independently thinking mm. kind of renegade in every, in every, walk in every corner and every subject and every every issue mm. i had to, i had to have my own opinion and mm. it had to be heard and if it wasn't heard i'm going to be really loud about it so I, was, <laughs> I was a renegade and, yeah. the, and the principal the headmaster of the school tried to find ways to get me out you know not to come to school the following year so i was enrolled in a boarding school in england and that was an orthodox religious jewish school oh wow as far as far from me as possible. <laughs> and my dad said, you're not going to have to pray. Don't worry. Of course, the next day, I, they put the tefillin on me. They taught me the whole thing. Mm. And three times a day, we stopped the day for prayer. But I didn't relate to the music. Mm-hmm. I had other music in my head. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so this lasted for one year. And uh, after that year, the principal of the school suggested I don't come back the following year. Wow. And uh, it ushered me out with grace, <laughs> mm. and and I went to another school, a tutorial in the south of England. But um, mm. in years to come, I would always, you know, I would like, for example, when I got married and I having my own family, and mm. we do the seder, mm-hmm. Passover night, and I was always worried, how would I ever remember how to run a seder? And sure mm. enough, you've gone every year, even if you, even if you doing everything you can to not absorb it, mm-hmm. not let it, not let, don't, not immerse yourself in it. It's mm-hmm. in you, it's in your blood. And mm-hmm. every, every melody is there. 
and I, mm-hmm. I know exactly how to run the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know it from my father's side. If somebody else's, everybody has their own tradition. So mm-hmm. it, and, and it, it, there's a beautiful thing about it, which I, mm-hmm. I love. It's that uh, it's predictable because you know it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't have to deal with actually anything of the likes uh, of a religious, um, you know, discipline of any sort, ever. Um, but I have a lot of respect for it. And, and, and when, I, when I heard, for example, there's a beautiful community here that was put together by a, a rabbi named Amichai Lau, and he's the nephew of the chief rabbi of Israel, their family of 35 generations of rabbis, and he's very different. He's a very different, beyond reform, very, mm-hmm. very accommodating to mm. all those who don't don't exactly fit, I'm the perfect candidate. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> However, even there, I don't want to fit, but I want to be able to um, support it, help it, and I find it charming, and I find it it's beautiful. Totally. It's just beautiful. So he built, created a you know a, a community, and there's about I don't know two thousand people in it now, and. Then when we'd sit on, on high holidays and listen to, to the melodies and all that, it all comes back because mm-hmm. most of his melodies are, are Ashkenaz and I'm Ashkenaz. Mm. So it reminds me always of home. So, I mean, you know, there's always a relation. Of course, in the past couple of years, I've been busy with, uh, with uh, what we call liturgical music and liturgical mm-hmm. uh, material because mm-hmm. There's this big reform uh, synagogue here, Temple Emmanuel, mm-hmm. who commissioned me to write, rewrite the music to Shabbat prayers. And they sent me over 14 prayers that they, that they go through on uh, Kabbalah Shabbat, on the Friday prayer. And I had to see if, and I had to find a way to, um, to convince myself that I am capable of presenting them with something that would be close to what they envisioned. And uh, because of my somewhat secular upbringing and, oh, I thought I wasn't, I, I really thought I wasn't the right guy for this. I didn't mm. want to, I didn't, out of, out of utter, utter and total respect to what the prayer means to the mm. people who gather to pray. And, uh, and they thought, no, this is exactly what we want. Mm. We want somebody who doesn't see it like everybody, who has mm. not experienced it, who will, who will invent for us the course wow. mm-hmm. of the prayer. And it was remarkable that they entrusted in me, but I didn't take the job until I had it all written. Oh. In other words, mm-hmm. I had to prove to myself yeah. that when I hand it to them, it's something that I'm prepared to perform, to record, and to commit myself to. Totally. Because, again, it'll take me back to the original voice that still I hear in my head and that mm. propelled me to become a singer, which is Otis Redding. Mm. There isn't a word that he uttered mm. that was not deeply heartfelt and from deep from within. That's exactly what I, I intend to do. And I, do, I keep to that over 40 years of career. Wow. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to sing anything unless I am totally committed. Right, so right. if I'm, if I'm like you with jazz, you, you know, you're mm-hmm. gonna, it's not even jazz with your mm-hmm. music at, at large. If you're going to perform, it's, 
that's who you are. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This is exactly where you put your you put your heart and your mind, and your soul there. This, open this, on the table. Totally. This reminds me, I was reading an interview with uh, Bob Dylan and it was a weird interview. The guy asked him, what do you say to people who say you have a bad voice? <laughs> and well, he said, uh, he said, uh, let me tell you a story. And he said he was hanging out with Sam Cooke one day and some someone came up to Sam Cooke and said, wow, Mal, man, you have such a beautiful voice. And Sam Cooke said, thank you, but you should not judge a voice by its quality. Rather, you should judge a voice by how much it's convincing you that it's telling the truth. Yeah, <laughs> oh, beautiful. man, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, just, it's it's a great. Yeah, I actually I was working. Um, well, we'll go back, I guess, to the to yeah the liturgical work. But mm-hmm. apropos what you just said, I was working with um, in in a, in a theater that uh, worked with um, with um, uh, the deaf and and the blind. Mm. Wow! And uh, and I was supposed to teach the deaf who are impaired. Uh, how to sing, and it was uh, it was I had to invent a way. How do you you know they have no control over the vocal cords? Wow, they, they don't hear, so right. they have a very hard connect. They have a hard a hard time connecting to the, to muster a voice to to be able mm. to project. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times their voice comes out very harsh and in, mm. incomprehensible. And people, people don't enjoy it. But who, what's people? You know, I mean, how many people go to listen to jazz? The ones who love jazz, right? Mm-hmm. People go to opera. The ones who love opera, mm-hmm. pop as pop means popular music. That's the largest of all. Right. But so there's all kinds. It's like abstract art. Yeah. And there's figurative art. And, uh, so I convinced them, and I taught them how to connect to their sound mm-hmm. in a certain technique that I developed. But the most important was the psychological uh, exercise that I had to convince them that that's their voice. Mm-hmm. And if somebody doesn't enjoy it, they can move away right. and they're not going to have to hear you. But yeah. you have something to say and you want to say it singing. Mm-hmm. And this is your singing voice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so let's not, let's not discard it or look at it as something that is not anything under uh, nothing less than a wonder mm-hmm. and apropos bob dylan you don't have a, a beautiful voice those guys do have a beautiful voice but mm-hmm. not many people think of it as beautiful but right. if you find the right context they'll mm-hmm. sing it in the right like bob sings it people copy him because he's so unique you know oh, but totally. with you know it's like he's proven himself over 50 years like they day after day minute after minute but these guys, I had to work with them, and and I did, and we presented at the end of the year some mm. kind of a, a musical production. Which was wow, really that's amazing! amazing. Yeah, Man, yeah, you know, it's it's a uh, um, kind of brings to mind how um, uh, you know, like everyone, like people I know who fall in the jazz genre. After many years, they still, you know, like Charles Mingus is. I don't know Charles Mingus. I never did, but he's a great example because he said he 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 fell in the jazz genre, but he played Mingus music. You know, after yeah. so many years, it was. It's who he is, and that's right. It's just that's what's it's so like, special. Take Everyone's... Tom Waits. Take Tom totally. Waits. From him. Yeah, he invented a voice. It's not. I've heard him sing in a much, much softer and sweeter voice than the mm. one that he he invented. Totally. The character and that character is, and he t- sometimes he even talks like that because he, <laughs> that's his character. You know, yeah. That's... Um, 
that's like Dylan too. I mean, I'll hear three or four different voices in different eras. And uh, I love how he kind of made, you know, made it so you had to write your own music once he came along and you had to tell your truth. And even if his truth was a lie, he still changed that you had to tell a story. <laughs> there are no lies. They're just a lot of truths. What is the truth? Yeah, it's <laughs> you tell people what you believe in, and that's the truth. And you can't convince anybody with anything unless you believe in what you're telling them. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> if you're if you're listen, if you're gonna lie in order mm -hmm. to def, you know to deceive people, to manipulate, you know, then you're then you're a crook. Right. Right. <laughs> you're not a liar. It's yeah. much worse than being a liar. Historians are the absolute. Uh, eternal liars in the sense that mm -hmm. they tell the truth from how they know it. Right, right, right. But for mm -hmm. every history, history book that has been written, there is another way of telling that story which might be completely different from another point of view. Totally. Yeah. And both are true. And both totally. are true. Yeah, and I'm really just, with Dylan, I'm really talking about like his interviews with like Nat Hentoff where he would make up, you know, I'm from New Mexico and my girlfriend's oh, a plumber. Those kind of silly things, but yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> that's a fib. That's right, right. Fib, fib. That's it. <laughs> yeah. No, who cares? Everybody. Yeah, he's tired of telling where he's. Okay. Yeah. No, but um, anyway. Oh no! Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> I don't know. We we just we should We're go just... back to the liturgical music, which is really the way mm -hmm. where we were before. I get offered to do this project, and and in my mind, I'm thinking, how will it be? exciting and interesting, why would I want to hear it or play it at all? Mm -hmm. And immediately what came to my mind, and I've said this before, I've told this before, a piece of music that I, I grew up listening to, grew up, I was already 15 when I discovered it. It's called Misa Criolla. Misa Criolla. I don't know if you ever heard of Creole. No. Misa no. Criolla. Creole mass, but look it up, anybody. Misa oh, Criolla. Yeah. yeah. I look up Misa Kriya on YouTube or Spotify or wherever, Pandora. Um, the version I grew, grew listening to or would listen to on every Saturday morning almost, was the one performed by a great Argentinian singer, Mercedes mm. Sosa. Mm. Mercedes Sosa was the voice of Latin America. Mm. I happened to get to know her later on in my career. We became close friends and I wrote a song for her. We did a duet. Mm. But I, I, I still like, like Otis Redding, she was the female voice that mm. I would listen to. Not that Aretha wasn't, but right. she was a folkier. Wow, unreal. Mm. And um, so she sang this Misa Criolla, and I wanted, I wanted to present the, the, the equivalent of a, of a mass. So it's called Tefila, which is the same mm. thing as a mass. And we have, and so I, I, I recruited a, a great musician, Omer Avital, this mm -hmm great bass player who I've followed for many, many years. Uh, I happened to bump into him on the street during COVID. And they were playing on the sidewalk um, <laughs> with his band passing a hat around. They just needed to play. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, okay, you're the guy, kid. would you be interested in working wow. with me? And he didn't know what it was about. We talked the next day and he joined me and he wrote all the orchestrations and arrangements. Mm -hmm. And and then um, I told him I want to have gospel choir and I want to have a classical choir. I want to have jazz. I want to have everything in it. So we have, so basically I wrote 14 prayers. Each one has its own flavor. And some of it is klezmer. 
Well, there's folky, some is flamenco, some is salsa, some is just pure jazz, mm. avant-garde jazz, you know. And it just became this big piece. After which the um, the, um, the the synagogue wanted me and asked me already to start with if I would commit to performing it. I said maybe twice. Mm. In truth, I'm, I'm, I've committed to perform it on the first Friday of every month until next June. So wow. for a whole year, basically. Mm. And then we gather everybody. We gather the choir. We have musicians. There's about 30 of us on stage. Yeah. And it's delightful. It's really brilliant. And, and they have um, a very, very nice rabbi. Mm. And he uh, he uh, comes, you know, several times during the show and gives a little bit of oratory, but very, very fine and not over not overpowering the music. And it's just a great night. Wow. And, and, and everything was written for a cathedral-like room, which mm. Temple Emmanuel is exactly that. Wow. It's this mm. big synagogue, beautiful. Oh. Anyway, that's my story with uh, the Jewish side of being Jewish. You know, right, right. <laughs> in my music. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting because talking to someone like Ben Sidron, you know, we we talk about, and, and someone, you know, I can relate to this, and I hear this from a lot of like American Jewish musicians who love things like the blues, you know, we Ben Ben told me this story. He basically grew up, he had his bar mitzvah, and then he didn't really get it. He didn't speak Hebrew. He didn't know what he was saying. And he went home and he put on a Miles Davis record and he felt like uh -huh. that was his real bar mitzvah. But he said, yeah. fast forward like 40 years, it's his son's bar mitzvah. And he goes to it. And basically what happened is he got totally overwhelmed not by the words, but by the melodies he was hearing, because it felt like he was standing next to his grandpa who passed away just, 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 you know, passed away years ago. It just brings him, brings him back. And I think what he was, you know, explaining to me and I can relate to is that because he didn't, you know, he grew up with these Ashkenazi melodies and, you know, I mean, it's not like it's using the blues scale or anything, but there are some similarities. Oh, there's a lot of blues in it. Yeah. Yeah. He felt like because he didn't know the words and he grew up with the melody that that's kind of what kind of led him into the blues. Um, and I've heard the same thing from a lot of American Jewish musicians, but you're from a different place because you understood so I, the words. <laughs> so let me exactly say, so this is really interesting now. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. What, what really got me committed as I was writing the music. I, mm -hmm. So what happened is it's 14 prayers mm -hmm. and I decided to see if I can do it any justice. So what turned out in the end is that I wrote a melody per day. Mm -hmm. So over 14 days, I wrote the entire piece. But what really, I mean, really got me magnetized to it, language. Unlike Ben Sidrin. Yes. Mind mm -hmm. you, I was writing new music, so it didn't matter. The, the 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 liturgical verse, the writing that these brilliant rabbis and writers and scholars wrote four, five, six hundred years ago, eight hundred years ago, mm. is the same. It's the sound of the Hebrew. And all of the years that I went to synagogue with my dad, or I was, you know, in Bar Mitzvah, Bar Mitzvah was different, but when I was when I was brought in in the in the boarding school, the Orthodox religious boarding school. Everything had a flavor of Ashkenaz or Sephardi mm. or whatever it was. It was not Israeli. Mm. It was, they were not singing my Hebrew. They were singing their Hebrew. 
the mm-hmm. diaspora, the Hebrew of the diaspora. So when a Polish Jew or a Moroccan Jew or an Iraqi Jew or an American Jew sings these things, they, it comes with their, the flavor, whatever their, whatever, however they emulate the sounds of the language. Mm. But when I do it from Tel Aviv, it's Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. It's Hebrew. Shema Yisrael Adonai Echad. It's not, it's not, a, it's not another language. Right. That is mm-hmm. my DNA. This is in, in, embedded in my blood, in my bone. Mm. That's the language. Yeah. And the interesting thing happened when Omer Avital invited me to his rehearsal space in Brooklyn. Mm. And he gathered a few, like three musicians. And they're in their early 20s, really young. Okay. And I'm kind of a little still uncertain, a little skeptic. Can I deliver it? Am I going to do it? I'm actually thinking maybe I'll call other, music, other singers to sing. Yeah, I was thinking of, uh, of um, uh, Neshama Kavlebach. Mm. I was singing, I was even thinking of maybe Paul Simon to do mm. one thing, you know, Shema Yisrael, or no, maybe do it, something like that, okay? And I was going to give it, and at the end of the session, I'm, I'm telling these guys, okay, the idea is that I'll have guests on this. Mm. They said, you got to be kidding. This, they're telling me, they're totally secular. They're saying, this is the first time we understand the prayers. It's the first time we hear the words. We've never heard the words before. Even in mm. Israel, you go in and it always has some kind of a, 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 a sound that comes from whatever culture the synagogue belongs to. Ashkenaz or Sephardi or mm. Syrian or Iraqi or Egyptian or whatever it is. Oh. And I was, I was blown away by it. I, I didn't realize that I didn't realize that I could deliver it as it, uh, you know, on the, on the 21st century in 2022, I could deliver it as part of our day-to-day language, which is exactly what the prayer is about. Totally. The prayer is about the day-to-day. The prayer is about gathering that community and having them relate their feelings through the lyrics to today's reality. It's not about presenting a liturgical piece that belongs to another century. Mm-hmm. Sorry, if that's, if now I get it. Now I get mm-hmm. where they miss such a big crowd of, of people who could come and enjoy and, and, and join in in this thing. Not only in the Jewish faith, in the Christian faith too, wherever they mm-hmm. pray together, there's something foreign to the day to day. Maybe that's where the evangelists are the winners. Mm. The Christian, you know, the new Christian movements, because they, they come in and they pray in the language they speak. That's what the gospel is. About. Mm. The gospel is about the every day. Yeah. <laughs> and in Judaism, the gospel, you know, Shlomo Kalebach had that spirit. But again, he was Ashkenaz. His Hebrew was not. This is Hebrew delivered in Hebrew. Wow. Even though it was written 800 years ago. Yeah. It's the same language. Wow. That's amazing. Blew me away. Wow. I mean. It's not about turning me into a believer. I'm always a believer. I'm a romantic. But yeah. as Sidrin would say, my religion, yeah, was Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. my religion was John Coltrane. My religion was mm-hmm. always, in a sense, the thing that I would find myself uplifted in, mm-hmm. in hard moments or calm down when I'm all worked up is jazz always oh. well music in general but jazz because yeah. as, as a kid my parents listened to so much of that 
So now I'm suddenly able to deliver these beautiful, beautiful prayers, Lechadodi, Misha Berach, and uh, you know, so the Ashkenaz always say Misha Berach, mm. and, the, and the others, and, and the Yemenites say it in a different way. Yeah. Mm. But if you're from Tel Aviv, you say Misha Berach, or wow. if you're Haifa from Haifa, from Israel today, you know. And so I, I think the magic and the beauty, beauty about, for me, the experience, mm. personal experience that I had was uh, discovering through the beauty of the language, a way for me to connect and deliver mm. the prayer. Wow. And mm. man, I'm having a blast. It's the greatest, one of the greatest shows I've ever done. I call it a show. It's not a show. Right, right. But it is. It is. We perform. We don't go there just to play the music. We perform it with wow. every person on that stage, 30 people on stage, including the choirs. They, I work them into it. Like, this is not just, oh, let's do it. Because, of course, the choir doesn't speak Hebrew. Mm -hmm. But I teach them, I tell them, I show them, I, I, uh, we get them to feel. Otherwise, all the other musicians are Israeli, except wow. for the percussionist who's Cuban. Wow. Man, this is fascinating, you know, not to keep bringing up Sidron, but it's interesting because he went back when he was, I think, like in his late 50s. He wanted to make an album revisiting Jewish tunes and playing, improvising on them, playing jazz. And he went and got, you know, Osei Shalom and, you know, stuff that he grew up with. And he said that while he, you know, went to synagogue and reacted emotionally to the melodies, it wasn't until he did this album that he realized how beautiful the melodies really were. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and that's beside the point. That the melodies, right, right. They are beautiful. Yeah, well, I I, wondered, but I'm not revisiting the melodies at all. Totally, uh, yeah. Totally. Uh, so to where I where uh, uh, he he <laughs> and me and other people can sometimes react emotionally to a melody we heard growing up. To you, it's really the words that that are the emotion. Exactly, right. which is why it's so beautiful that you that Sidron. It was the music, right, that pulled mm -hmm. me, him in. For me, it was a page. Mm. Actually, it was it was actually on my, in my phone, on my email, and I look at it, and I know it. You know, I know the Shema Israel, I know Mishab Berach, Avraham Yitzchak Yaakov, Rachel VeLeah, and I and I, okay, but suddenly I'm reading him as Hebrew, and I've got to I got to set music to it, just like as if it was Meir Ariel, May he rest in peace, this great Israeli poet. Mm. Uh, or Jonathan Geffen or Nathan mm. Alterman. I mean, for me, that's the same language. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> Man, well, I just had two more things to, to ask you, if that's cool. And I wanted yeah. to share this with you before I forget, because it's too funny. You know, Otis Redding is from Georgia. and uh, That's right. Yeah. So, you know, I'd have this great friendship with Les McCann. And, you know, I don't know if oh, you're yeah. familiar. You know, there's this there's this mountain here. It's called Stone Mountain, and it has all the Confederate uh, uh, generals on this mountain. And Les said, look, you know, we got to take off the Confederate guys and put up Otis Redding, James Brown, Ray Charles, and change the name of the mountain from Stone Mountain to Stoned Mountain. That's right. <laughs> so, so good. Let's do it. Yes. I just had to tell you that before I forgot. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because we're talking about how, like, you know, music is and what you bring to the music is who you are. And so, right. you know, uh, you know, you I you know, you're talking about, you know, uh, your recent project, which has choirs, classical gospel, you know, all these flavors. Yeah. And that's really, you know, Broza music. It's you. Yeah. True. Um, but, you know, I mean, I feel like, you know, and I, I know we're not the people, the musicians aren't the people who create the genre terms or anything like that. Right. But Exactly. I, you know, you get bought, not you, but like, you know, when I read about you, you know, it's, it's Israeli music, it's Jewish music, it's, you know, and I'm Spanish. just curious, 
is there any any term that you actually feel like really captures what you do? Like, I mean, it's you know Spanish music too. Is is it is it Israeli music? You know, I'm just curious what you see it all as. Okay, you just said it. It's Israeli music. Mm. But of of I guess now a wizened traveler because mm-hmm. I've traveled the world. Mm-hmm. And when I there's two things I want to say. Mm-hmm. When I started this career, and you know. I already had record companies coming to me, wanting to sign me on. Mm. I'm 22 then, just out of the army, because I served three years in the Israeli army. Mm. And as I said, I I did not see myself as a musician. Mm. I had never written a song, I wasn't into it. By then I'd written one song, Yetov, Mm. it was really big, my first song. They wanted to sign me. They keep on, they're telling me before, you gotta get signed, this is your career. I said, no, I'm gonna be a painter, I'm gonna be a musician. Mm. So even then, I wasn't convinced. Eventually, I get signed. And there, there, I make the switch, and I dedicate my life to learning how to write music, learning, teaching myself. Mm-hmm. Where connect, Like you say, it's, it's you. So you mm-hmm. connect to yourself and see what comes out. But the, way, the reason it's Israeli is because Israel is a country, as everybody knows, made up of maybe 120 or, or more than 120 cultures. Mm-hmm. of the different Jews that come from all over the diaspora and, and become Israeli and mm-hmm. go live there. And, and even though there's a Moroccan next to the Algerian, next to the French, next to the German, the Russian, and the American, and the Irish, and the old Jews, and this, the French still hate the English, and the English still hate the Germans, and because they're Germans, but they're Jews. Now they have to be together. Then the Moroccans have an issue with the Algerians, who have an issue with the Libyans, who couldn't stand the Egyptians, who hate the Iraqis. Wow! And it's a whole <laughs> mess of... of of tribes that can't stand each other from the mm. culture, and yet are today are a conglomerate of na- of national of cultures mm. under one flag, Israel, and mm. they're all being Jewish, and they're all Israeli Jews, and they're in the and then the Knesset, and there's 120 mm. members from probably 100, probably from 80 different cultures, and even though they all speak Hebrew, they all speak Hebrew with a point of view of a Moroccan, of a Polish, of a Russian, of a Ukrainian. I don't. You can't, same thing with the music. Israeli Mm -hmm. music is so mixed with culture. Mm -hmm. It's so rich. That's when, that that when when you take the Israeli out of Israel, you can't take Israel out of the Israeli. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So I come to America and I work with American poets and I travel the land and I go to the deep south and I really Mm -hmm. play every dark room and drink the worst coffee ever. And I don't get paid sometimes. I do get paid sometimes. I get with a gunpoint, get the hell out of here. All these stories that for real, I, mm-hmm. I lived them. Even though I was a big star in Israel, I decided to go from scratch, start mm-hmm. here and expose myself, mm-hmm. get exposed to this culture. Yet when I wrote with Matthew Graham, uh, with, uh, with Alberto Rios, with Liam Rector, with all these different mm-hmm. writers, American poets, you know, poets, uh, my music came from... The, what I grew up on, right? So mm. this big mix. So that's Israeli music. It's a mishmash. Okay? But the, the real definition to me came when I was signed first time to Manhattan Records and EMI mm. here in New York in 1989. And the gentleman who was the president is Bruce Lundvall. It's amazing. Mm. You know, he started Blue Note Records and all that. Mm. The greatest wow. real connoisseur of music. Unreal. Wow. He was a president of Colombia before. He had a, a big name for himself. Yeah. And, and I presented him my songs and he signed me on as a new artist. 
And he said, look, Rosa, you, you're writing music to poetry. And poetry is not a four-letter word. Don't be afraid of it. And here in America, we like to compartmentalize everything. Everything has to be pigeonholed. Mm. Everything. Jazz, blues, folk, folk rock, this, that, the other. Mm -hmm. You don't belong to none of these because you have your own pigeonhole that's called unique. Mm. Stick to it. Oh, and man. don't be afraid of it. And that's the man who signed me. Wow. And that's amazing. Yeah. No. So that was, that was, then I knew that even here I will find mm -hmm. the right people with whom to work, couldn't understand. I was very close to, you know, getting a real career off the ground here and all kinds of things happen. So I have my own journey to make. Wow. And therefore, you know, I'm, I'm 45 years later with all the different deals that I've had and the records I've put out, dozens of records and mm -hmm. everything. I've, I'm, you know, I, I made it my own way, you know, wow. there's no, there's no way. And he's right. That's and that's so. what, and Tefillah now is that, is another example or the album before, which was my instrumental album in Casa Limon. Mm. It's a different, completely different album than what I've done before. And every time I, I, you know, I, I confuse my own audience. They don't always stay with me. Sometimes they go in and wait for the thing that they, that mm. reminds them of what they know, but I don't, it's my, I have to sing my song. You gotta I have, be to, you. I have yeah. to tell my story. I can't do somebody else's. Totally. I can't be in somebody else's shoes. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> what I walk in. I walk in my own shoes. You know, I walk the walk and talk the talk. That's it. You gotta be you. Yeah. It's interesting. This is just the last, the last thing is that, uh, you know, you, the, the way you, you know, uh, describe Israeli music is kind of how I look at whatever Jewish music is. And yeah, you know, I was, uh, um, you know, I did some work for Wynton Marsalis and I was telling oh, yeah. him about this festival. And and at the time it was called the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival. And he, and, I, and he said, Jewish music, interesting. All of American music, but not really a thing. And I said, exactly, <laughs> you know, which I loved. But the, the, the question I wanted to ask you is, you know, basically when I, I've gone to classes on Jewish music for years and they always go like this. It's always the teacher says, you know, Bob Dylan's Jewish, then he plays a song and then moves Carol King's Jewish, then plays a song. And everyone in the class would be thinking, this is great. But I'd be wondering, what's the Jewish part? Like, you know, to you, is there is there anything missing from that model of, is that, you know, if you were taught in a Jewish music class in a similar way, they say your name and play a song and then move on to the next person. Is that, is that, I don't know, how does that feel? Or is that anything well, missing? I, it's, it's funny because they're labeling it Jewish because the person, uh, I'm in Berlin, was Jewish. Mm. He wrote White Christmas uh, yeah. uh, or, or America the Beautiful. I don't know. I mean, all these songs mm. written by Jews. So they were Jews. I mean, they could have right. been Muslim. They could have been a Christian. It could have been an orth uh, Greek Orthodox. It could have mm -hmm. been anything. Totally. Mm -hmm. As Jewish, no. I, I think like Gershwin, like, uh, you know, the West Side Story, uh, mm. Leonard Bernstein, there is something which America has, has contributed to many different races and many different peoples. Mm -hmm. uh, the ability to, to accept them, but they have to assimilate. Everybody's assimilated here. The, the Wynton Marsalis, the Gershwins, mm -hmm. Bob Dylan's, mm -hmm. Rosa, you, everybody's assimilated. Why? Because the guy on the street, the guy in the grocery store, the guy on the bus, your professor, your mm -hmm. doctor. They have to, we all have to communicate right. on, on a certain code. And this is the American code. Mm 
So when we write music, we're using that code. Totally. Mm-hmm. True, on Friday night, we go to shul. Or we mm-hmm. sit with the family and we do kiddush. Mm-hmm. Or we don't do any of that. We, mm-hmm. we watch a movie. But we're Jewish. Right. But he's a Greek Orthodox. And he's an atheist. And he's a, a Muslim. And he's a Buddhist. We all use that code mm-hmm. by which we can, or with which we can live with one another under this umbrella called the United States. Mm-hmm. And if I was in Uruguay, it was the umbrella of Uruguay. And if it's mm-hmm. London, it's the British one. And the fact that you're Jewish, mm-hmm. So you have a lot of, um, you know, you have uh, spices mm-hmm. that belong to whatever your heritage is. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Simon is Jewish. So his heritage is Ashkenazi, you know, son of a doctor living, growing up in, in Queens. I don't know what. Yeah, yeah. But, he, but he's an assimilated. I mean, mm-hmm. Bridge Over Troubled Waters is anything but Jewish. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, he's a Jew. Really. Hey, you yeah. know what? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy that. You know, we're members of the tribe and the tribe uh, happens to include a lot of brilliant people mm-hmm. and something in the DNA and the genom of the of our people has its brilliant side. There's other peoples too that are brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I, I don't carry that flag. I, right. I do love, I do love the code by which Jews maintain their tradition. Mm-hmm. That's a, tr- that's a code that is parallel to the major code, which is the American society code, by mm-hmm. which we all live, right. if we're in America. In Israel, mm-hmm. we live by the Israelis. But each, each community creates its own code by whatever, whoever they are. You know, there's the Syrian Jews. Mm-hmm. They have a very serious code by which you cannot break that code. Right. You cannot even assimilate. <laughs> you, gotta be, you gotta be it. Mm. You're assimilating when you open a restaurant, a grocery mm. store, a laundry, a lawyer, an attorney's office. Yeah. Mm. You open up there. I don't know. No, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's nice that we can openly talk about it right. and, and disagree or agree or just food mm. for thought. Uh, but we're all assimilated people. Totally. Yeah. You know, I feel like, you know, I look at all this, I really study a lot of, you know, jazz and American music and you'll find quotes from people like Gershwin who say my music is American. It's not Jewish. And yes. the argument, when I talk to people like Sidra the argument is always, are they just redefining what it means to be Jewish in America? Or are they shutting their Judaism? You know, and it's always an interesting. No, it's two, it's two things. Mm-hmm. But both of those. or You have two codes. If, yeah. if no matter what happens, mm. when you turn out the light, Mm-hmm. You come from a lineage of Jewish people, right. of Jewish family. Mm-hmm. That you can't erase. That I don't care what it is. When some guy, I have a friend, <laughs> Argentinian musician, very successful, lives in Madrid, and uh, and yesterday, two days ago, he wrote to me. You know, he had a bout with cancer, and he lived had a hard year. He's back mm. on rock and roll. He's heavy duty rock and roll guy. Mm. And after all the rock and roll and all of that stuff and everything, and he says, you know what? Tonight I'm going to have an incredible dinner because I'm going to have conditions. Thinking, that's what, that's, <laughs> that's what makes you happy. <laughs> yeah. Now, mm-hmm. if, you, if you talk to a gypsy in Spain or to a local madrileño from Madrid or Toledo, mm. they're like, Kanish, blah, 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 blah. So, what mm. the hell is that? I don't, yeah. I don't know what it is. Mm. So you, say, you tell him chorizo or you tell him uh, mm. jamón or you tell him... Uh, a glass of wine, and then he understands. But Kanish, that's 
completely Yiddishkeit, uh, mm. Polish, German, Russian, Russian probably food that traveled to Argentina where he grew up and he ended up in Spain and but tonight's special night. <laughs> so even, even Berlin would probably would have been really happy to have latke and the Kanish mm. or something at the end of the, because his mother's cooking came from that, that's what she served his grandmother served it somebody down not far from where you know he's probably second generation maybe mm. or first generation American but wow. he but the DNA there's the double code there's the assimilated code mm-hmm. which is yes I'm writing American music because I'm in America but always there's for me there, there's always an Israeli point of view within my music because I cannot take the Israeli out of course I can take mm-hmm. I can t- you can take no you you can take the Israeli out of Israel, but you can't take Israel out of the Israeli. And this totally. is my this is my culture. So yeah. I'm living in double standards or double. No, I'm kind of split up. But I'm yeah. I'm I'm split up three times. Split up because I also grew up in Spain, so I have this. Whole thing <laughs> yeah, that's that's what makes you, you you and your music so special and unique. And you know, I'll just share. You know, I've, I had 300 conversations with people about asking them what is Jewish music. Not because I have a, my opinion or anything. I'm just curious what everyone's opinion and as i got yeah. 300 different answers and to me the most one of the most fascinating was from george ween uh do you remember you know uh, george ween he, uh with the newport jazz festival oh yeah 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 i asked him i said what's jewish music and he said cole porter and i said what because he's <laughs> and he said look he said take something like my heart belongs to daddy that's a very jewish sounding song and he said cole porter understood that at the time he was writing for broadway much of the audience were Jews coming from Yiddish wow. theater and they had to write music that resonated with them. <laughs> so he said to him that made the music more Jewish than Harold Arlen's, you know, whose dad was. No, a but it's not true. That's not, right. that's not because it's an impression. Right. Mm-hmm. He's, he's writing an impression as if mm. you were telling me, write a French song. I'll write a French song. It's an impression. Mm. It's not his DNA. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come from his mother's cooking or his mother's <laughs> milk. No, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, Sorry, that's Cole it. Porter, you know? No, you're right, yeah. <laughs> I agree. So that, his answer was a, a, a sweet one and play, it plays well, but if you look for one minute into it, you realize, no, no way. That's not, right. that's, that can't be. Not his mother's <laughs> cooking, not his mother's milk. So, I like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, <laughs> what's fast? I mean, we, I know you got to go and we can talk all day I, about this stuff. But uh, yeah, I, have, just, I have a few more minutes, but uh, you know, I have, I have a meeting with uh, the big um, program director from Israel no, that I want to talk to, and, and they're leaving. So, oh, so man. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we touched on, I mean, if there's anything on this Jewish music concept that's left, you know, that, you, you know, I guess it's hard to say if you have an actual definition. I mean, they have to be, it stems from having a Jewish experience at some point. I mean, that sounds like, but you, but yeah. you don't, you don't understand that you're having Jewish experience or mm. Spanish experience or Greek experience when you, when you're born and you grow up into it. Right. Like I said, it's your mother's milk. Yeah. This is mm-hmm. what's, what's the ambience in the house, the food, the mm. conversations, you know, mm-hmm. the nostalgia is for things that you don't understand. Right. And then mm-hmm. you grow up and they're part of your nostalgia for the nostalgia. Mm-hmm. They're part of your taste buds for that particular cooking. And, you know, I, I don't think there's a, a human being that's born and raised in, a, in at least for part of his life in the, in the same household as his parents mm-hmm. that won't be affected by whatever the tradition or the culture of the parents mm-hmm. in the house. Totally. 
It's like, oh. I mean, you know, I remember George Ween ended our conversation kind of by saying that, you know, a Jewish person will react emotionally to this music and a non-Jewish will react more intellectually to it. It's just, Correct. that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Man. It's fascinating. I love it. Man, it's such a treat to talk with you about this stuff. I can't thank you enough for spending time with me and talking. And I hope we can do many more. (laughs) No, it's very cool. And I understand now what what you're trying to get to. And when you turn to me, Mm. yeah, we can talk about this for hours. But, you know, it's like like a a street corner philosophy. Mm Because this is when you talk without giving too much importance into phrasing what you're saying, you just speak from the heart. So right. mm-hmm. it's not an intellectual or, or you know, I'm, I can, I think if, if the listener now or viewer is not dizzy from the whirlwind, because we, st- we were talking about a few things and mm-hmm. the way I tell the story, sometimes like the Masada and Jackson Brown. So it had a long story. It started in mm. Chicago with <laughs> Nicola Ferry. Then, you know, all different stories that have, uh, uh, to me, the story is not worth any, the punchline is not worth anything if you can't tell the whole. Totally. You know, the whole journey. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I guess I've lived a lot of these journeys so far. So I'm happy, I'm happy to share them, but it could turn the audience feeling a little dizzy. Oh, well, I mean, this is, this is what we're, we get into. <laughs> it's this without, without singing one song. Yeah. <laughs> it's It's perfect. No, I, I love it. It's, it's all part of this exploration. <laughs> you know, it just, it's, it's great to have these conversations and see. I agree. I agree. Oh, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, you yeah. connect, you connect me to people that I haven't talked like Ben Sindrin. I haven't spoken about him in mm-hmm. years or heard yeah. about him. And I'm, wow. I love the guy. What a great musician, you know. I can connect y'all or anything if you want, if you ever wanted to talk to him or anything, you know. Or yeah, no, I'm, I'm just, yeah. I, t- I, w- I want to talk about him. <laughs> he's brilliant. Oh, he's great. Yeah. Of course, I would love to meet him someday. I think we met once in Madrid, maybe, or somewhere. Or Chicago, wow. I don't know, somewhere. Well, but anyway, it's like, it's yeah. not just him, it's the people that you're connected with. You bring up to, it's a new conversation. We have never really had a conversation before. Totally, yeah. You and I. So I know, yeah. <laughs> so the poor people are now stuck in between. I think, what are you talking about, you guys? <laughs> <laughs> we we got some we got some people. We latched them on. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Well, I know you gotta run, but uh no, thank you. I wanna end with a major chord because everybody says that Jewish music is always minor key. <laughs> yes. So I'll end it up with a major chord. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Man. Well, this is great. Maybe we could do part two sometime. <laughs> Please. Okay. We'll continue. This is great. Really. To be continued. Now yeah. that I know now that I know how, how crazy you can go. <laughs> we, we can go crazy together. More even. Yeah, I'll ask, next time I'll ask the questions. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay. Man, I, I look forward to it. Okay. Thank you so much for tuning in today. It was such a treat to chat with the legendary David Broza. Again, my name is Joe Alterman, and I'm the executive director of the Atlanta-based Naranana Concert and Culture Series. For more information on David Broza, please visit davidbroza.net. And for more information on Naranana, please visit naranaarts.org. That's N-E-R-A-N-E-N-A-H-A-R-T-S.org. 
thank you so much. And I hope you'll tune in next week for another wonderful conversation. Thanks so much.